Hello, it's Monday night, and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the podcast where comics and politics meet. This is a show for folks who know that the only solution to living in the darkest timeline is standing together with or without Kitty Pride time-traveling through the time stream to get involved in the process. Uh, this is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn, and tonight we're covering Season 2 of Legion, the FX show which is a nominally X-Men-based prestige television. It gave us a lot to talk about um, and last season uh, from mental health. to And this season we're talking about mental health, memes, retro aesthetics, a lot of, a lot of different topics. And uh, Leonardo, uh, who was my guest last time around, was such the perfect guest for us to talk season one that I knew we had to have him back for season two. Um, so Leonardo, welcome, welcome to join us again. I just realized I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name. So run that through me one more time. <laughs> yeah. You know, it like, um, I, I usually just say Fairman because that seems to be the simplest it's fireman in Hebrew. Um, but fairman is like functionally what I always hear. So I don't really mind either way. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, for your biography, Leonardo mm. was born in Buenos Aires, raised in Queens. On the playground was where he planned most of his schemes. Since he has plowed a jagged path as a writer, editor, podcaster, comic creator, and mostly benevolent malcontent in New York City, Leo is one-fifth of the long-running podcast Black Comics Chat, one-half of the horror podcast The Scream Squad, a staff writer for Screen Rant, film editor for the independent sci-fi monthly newsletter Narazu, and generally has words all over the interwebs but they're frequently gathered on Twitter at Leonardo EFF. So hello, welcome back. Hi, Ilana. Yo, the, the, thank you so much for having me again. And thank you so much for having me on this particular subject, which I adore. Oh, yes. Oh, that's good. That's good. And I just want to make sure our listeners know from here on out, spoilers abound. This is for people who've watched season two um, yep. and are comfortable just talking about everything about it. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I'm doing this episode tonight, actually, is because my city councilman, uh, Carlos Menchaca, representing uh, Sunset Park and uh, Red Hook in Brooklyn, is a huge fan of the series, and he mentioned his enthusiasm at hearing the show cover it again. So when your city so cool. councilman is – I know, my city councilman who's totally awesome and endorsed Cynthia Nixon for governor, and it's just a badass. When he's like, oh, you guys, I'm really excited for season two, then I said, okay, we're going to have to do another episode about season two. Um <laughs> So I guess I'll start out by saying, overall, like, do you feel like the show has maintained its quality between season one and two? Do you think that the season is better than before? How how do you mm. think it's charting? Interesting. I like it's it's such a different monster, and uh, it's funny because I was catching up not too long ago on Atlanta. Um, which is obviously shares a home on FX as well. And I remember I was telling somebody and I was like, you know, this season of Atlanta is half as funny and three times as profound as the first mm. season. Like the show really like kind of changed direction. And I, I, do, I wouldn't use the exact same words to describe Legion, but the, the, the tensions, the intentions, the concepts that the show is like passionate about pursuing are so different in season two to me. Um, I mean, in certain ways, it feels like they're, uh, they're an evolution, um, I think, especially in terms of, uh, I, I feel like season two approaches a mental illness in even a more like overt way than even season one mm -hmm. did, even though there's mental institution scenes. Um, it just really goes for that. 
but at the same time, it feels like it's using items in the toolbox that it never pulled out before. You know, you know, I yeah, I feel like the, the I feel like the big different theme that we have. There's a couple of different themes that we have here that we didn't really have before, but the the big one that I feel like is particularly political is the question of delusions and social delusions and how they spread. And I think that you know this is a season that was written after the Trump election, and I think that the uh, the fact that there's multiple voiceovers, science diagrams and illustrations looking at how bad information spreads, how um, it, it's like a really it seems to me like a, like a writer who's, who's thinking about how to understand Trump winning the election. Um, I mean, there's an episode where they basically are talking about how ideas are being spread. And it was so funny to me because I'm so used to having people talk about that in terms of memes. Right. So to mm-hmm. see somebody sort of use the traditional description um you know the egg sequence with the uh the black chick the sort of did you did you see uh twin peaks because the, the the weird inky sludgy chick from the egg in this i was like oh this is like the frog wasp from the twin peaks the return coming back. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. possibly somebody will vore it off on the camera but um but, you know, like the whole sequence with the egg, I'm like, okay, this is literally talking about memes. And they talk about, you know, can obsessive compulsive disorder essentially be spread as a meme? And, you know, the question of delusions and growing and spreading on a single idea. And I think when you think about bad ideas, like lies and social contagions, like the whole notion of the birthers uh, who said that, you know, Obama was not an American citizen, um, you know, they, they used the fact that America – racism default understanding of the world always is going to see people who have non-Anglo-Saxon names as being foreign in some way and is always going to see people who are black as being other period we're already going to look at President Obama through a lens of him being an other so choosing a contagion that was claiming that he wasn't actually a citizen was you know going to be a particularly sticky lie, a particularly easy to spread lie, and that sort of is a contagion that you know t- Trump came into political prevalence off of promoting birtherism, right? So right. I just really think that that metaphor is really what this season is focused on to me most most of all. That's that's really I would I would even elaborate on it further the idea that the particular circumstances that the, that the, that the group, you know, now with division three are in puts them into this like position where they're sort of vulnerable to the ideas of delusions more so than they were before. And similarly, I would position that that's, that's a, that's a description of much of this country um, at Mm -hmm. the point of the last election as well. Um, And the, you know, the, the spooky shit, and I don't want to go to Internet Rule 13 or whatever the hell it is, but the whole idea is that that was also the same state that Germany was in prior to World War II. It was mm-hmm. just sort of like beaten up and primed for uh, for a kind of uh, a, an infectious concept, an infectious and, and lethal and dangerous concept uh, to sort of like take hold in a way that like, you know, looks like it's like it. it you think it, it couldn't possibly have been like planned for like years and years in advance, but the conditions are so perfect. It feels planned. It feels designed in some way. And that's sort of how I feel like we've been, even though that's a really pessimistic mm-hmm. overview of us, but it feels that way. I, you know, I, I think that like he, he, he's interested in having us like question, you know, the source of our beliefs. And it's so interesting to see somebody do that in 
a story that has very few traditionally political moments. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it does dumb stuff like they totally have a both sides do it moment in one of their various science movie diagrams of how bad ideas are spread. And it's like, no, guys, mm-hmm. only one side are Nazis. The other side are not Nazis. Um, yeah. But which I guess sort of shows you again, like how this is like this sort of a very much more interested in political theory of how things function and less interested in the content of what those ideas are. Um, but this, this, this season felt like it was all about that. And, well, what, what, uh, what do you think of it plot wise? Like, what do you think of the structure of that? Of like the narration uh, asides? Like, did were you were you were you game for that? Did you feel like I was personally a little upset by it just because I kept wanting it to be contextual and it never was? It's just magical. Yes. Agreed. Too many times you can't just keep doing it. If either they should have done it like every episode, as you know, like this is the musical segment and this is the science television segment or you you have to do it less i i think it it, it used it too much as a as like a as a shortcut um right. and uh, yeah they also like they couldn't just keep going back to it as much as they did i'm also going to say i felt like the middle of the season dragged it might have had to do with um the schedule within which i watched the show anyway perhaps but for me i felt like the mid-season really dragged and you know even in the even in episodes that dragged for me there's always some visually striking images that you're just really happy that you saw, you know, this show is still art directed to be Jesus and back, but I do yeah. feel like the middle of the season drags for me. Did it drag for you? I, I like, I have to somewhat agree in, in certain ways. Like it dragged for me. It started to drag for me a little bit until there was the sit episode, which I was just sitting straight up in my mm. seat for. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then I sort of like fell again <laughs> like a bit. Uh, yeah. Like it, I mean, part of it is felt like it, it felt like it like it took its sweet ass time in a lot of ways, um, and then when it sort of had its eye on the prize, it's like no, 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 okay, now we know where we're going. It went there pretty briskly, um, all things considered. But I did feel like around that Sid episode, it was it w- it was dragging a little bit. I, I thought the same thing. Let's talk about the Sid episode a bit because that is one of the things that I have a lot of thoughts on in, in terms oh, of yeah. pop political and social analysis that I, I, I agree that episode was really interesting. I mean, the show is increasingly, uh, you know, spending more time with her. Um, what I, to me, like the sit episode is even more important in light of the conversations that she has later on with Melanie bird. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if a show, if a, uh, Jean Smart's character, if a show has ever used hair costumes to communicate points about, a character definitely the falling of Melanie's bouffant is a great <laughs> symbol for her becoming more disheveled in her mind. And, you know, eventually we learn she's been infested by Farouk. Um, but right. I was like, Oh, she's really losing it. And her hair shows it. Cause that is, that was some impeccable, impossible to maintain hair that she'd been maintaining there. So I, I understand that she couldn't maintain it like in the face of having a mental illness moment, frankly. Does she get it um, back at the Am I crazy? Nope. She, no, no, she doesn't. She go. It's um, her, her hair is styled better, but it's not the full level of right. meticulous bouffantness from a magazine as before. So in the beginning of the season, it's completely messed up, and then at the end of the season, when Farouk is 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 manifesting her, um, well, except for you know, there's a, the moments where she and Oliver in that ice cube in their minds. That's 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 offside. That's all in her head. But I mean, uh, but in in the show, her hair gets more polished, but not to the level it was before. But um, but so Melanie's conversation with 
um, conversations with Sid, you know, both before and then after that, really focus on, oh, the things that we do for our men and how women put their lives on hold to, to follow the dreams that their boyfriends or husbands have and how um, we, you know, women become like subsumed in their partner's dreams and stuff. And what's interesting is that, you know, every time Melanie makes this point, Sid is like, okay, that might be you, but it's not me. Uh, mm-hmm. That might be what happened to you, but that's not what happening to me. And the thing is to us as a viewer, we still have been predominantly looking at everything as being David's story. And, you know, Sid is a very active character in it. She's certainly not a damsel in distress, but she's not the protagonist. So what you think, what I think here is that Sid is rejecting Melanie's analysis of her just following their man's dream because Sid, you know, is very much in the belief that she is the protagonist of her own story. And that's definitely, you know, a very modern woman perspective on the story. But if you've been growing up consuming, uh, you know, older media, the assumption that you are going to have is that the woman isn't the center. And that even if we're not seeing it predominantly through her eyes, um, she's just there as a supporting character. Uh, Mm. So I think the fact that like we get more, from, we have a whole episode that is just Sid's this season, for example, and we do have more from her in general. Like she's not a full secondary, she's not a full protagonist. She's a, she's still only the secondary protagonist, but we're getting more of her in that, which is sort of how Sid believes that. No, this is her story. You know, she even has a moment in the second to last episode where she's like, no, actually, I'm the hero. And it felt to me like that's something that you would say in a story in which the male character was the hero. Is you have a woman <laughs> say, no, actually, actually, I'm the one who's going to do it. And it's like this badass moment. But you're like, again, this only makes sense because we're all assuming that the man is still the hero. Huh. And you know, but doesn't it sort of muck things up, the idea that uh, her, that this conceptual future Sid is a primary active person who is trying to change shit like the other self yeah but again not yes exactly she's definitely an actor she's definitely like she has agency it's just not her it's not exactly her but it is her but also like that might be Amal Farouk right like it's it's hard to know I thought that at first but then when considering how developments occur and then considering the conversation uh, that, that Sid has with Farouk made me think like, it can't be because what is he doing? Talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Like that obviously was like a direct experience that was had off site that no one else got to witness. Um, at least for most of it. So like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's hundred percent clarified to be honest, but it's interesting mm-hmm. because that, um, that that that's that let's call her the Sid with agency, the future Sid with agency um, is actually a, a weirdly, uh, you know, a weirdly positioned character of which Sid is jealous of. Like she's envious of the Sid that she is that has agency that is trying to change things. Uh, so that's sort of interesting that the, that, you know, the, the present timeline Sid has jealousy, which was perhaps well-founded, as we later discover, um, but does have, like, these feelings of jealousy because maybe she also sees something, she admires something about the fact that this is a Sid who's trying to change the world. 
Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I do. I did feel like they, they were initially going to play into the whole jealousy thing more, and I was so glad that they didn't do more with it because I have zero interest. I have yeah. zero interest in watching women be jealous of each other, and I have even less interest in watching women be jealous of themselves. <laughs> um, I, 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 but I, talk, but you're, like to the extent that that sh- that that is a part of the show, I definitely agree with your take on it. Um, yeah. I was just sort of like, oh, thank God they're not going to do that too much because I would definitely lose my mind. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, like, this is still a show about men fighting for control of everyone else's minds over and over again. And who's going to get to control everyone's minds? Right. A fight between two man gods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and like the torture scene near the end was, you know, like when you're questioning, like, when did he become Oliver? Why was Oliver going along for it as long? I, you know, you know that, all everything. Yeah. No, well, it's like, well, what you were saying before about Melanie, you had me thinking about something about this idea that um, part of like Melanie's character journey also regards her romantic evolution with Oliver, which is that, you know, in season one, there was weirdness, right? Like there is that rediscovery, but Oliver is somehow disconnected from their actual history. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. probably because like he's just been locked in that, uh, what do they call it? The the, The the ice cube. Yeah, but they, I thought it had a name, like the ether or something. I forgot the name of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, he's been there so long that he's, he's, his brain has kind of, like, turned to mush and needs to be beaten back into shape. Uh, so, like, he's yeah. not really connecting with Melanie in a way that's satisfying. And it's really palpable. Like, Melanie's sort of like, oh, my God, Oliver's back. And he's like, oh, you're my wife? I mean, I guess that's okay. You know, and it's just they're not really communicating. And then right, right at that point, he's taken. So it's like Melanie is this woman who's been sort of reserving – her, her sense of love for this, like, you know, misbegotten thing that she finally gets back and is dashed in her face, whether by Oliver's, like, you know, own choices or not is, is irrelevant, it, but that's what happens. So it's like, then she, you know, uh, turns into herself and gets into addiction and becomes a sort of different person as a defensive measure against that. Um, and it's like, what we're talking about before about the delusion concept and the and delusion interstitial narrative stuff. It's like, well, Melanie is in the perfect position to have Farouk mold her mind to do something else at that point, because she is yeah. sort of Oliver. So it's like, I've, like that was always, I don't remember all of the delusion uh, uh, narrative vignettes, um, but mm-hmm. the one that I feel like connected the most and seems thematic throughout every episode is this idea that, that, that delusion that you find like there's a reason it takes hold like there's a vulnerability and an openness to that delusion that you betray um so so yeah it's sort of like um because there's this thing about like well you know Farouk controlling Melanie or not and it's sort of like Melanie was like ready to be controlled like she was ready to be taken in that way she was sort of in a Mm -hmm strong position for it. And that's so heartbreaking because when we're introduced to her in season one, I was like, look at this completely badass self, self like contained female leader. Who's like this completely untouchable femme goddess. Who's just running this agency and she's doing it and her hair is perfect. And that's this, this is like a, an archetype you don't really get to see much of. And Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, they're like, oh, actually, she's running this mission at the behest of her really awesome dude husband. And, you know, obviously, she's someone who is seen as being very competent at that. But then as soon as that gets shaken, it's like, 
I don't know. I don't like what they've. I don't feel like the take on Melanie this season has been very feminist at all. And I think that the dialogue between her and Sid has been interesting in the sense of, like, I've seen that dialogue, intergenerational dialogue between women before. But I think yeah. that they did not do good things to, 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 to Melanie's character. And that kind of sucks. It's such a good point. And I'm, like, and I'm betraying my, like, my, you know, shitty maleness. But yeah. I guess I haven't really asked myself that question is, is Legion season two sort of preoccupied with like vulnerable femininity? And mm. I, and I, like, I think it might be now that we're talking about it. And that is, that is distressing because I mean, like me, like many of the women save maybe Carrie, maybe, mm-hmm. although Carrie is, sh- Carrie is shaken. She's shaken in season one too, but she's yes. like really shaken. Really in, shaken. In season, yeah. Yeah. Like she's still pretty tough, but like, I, I now I'm I may have to reevaluate a couple things about, about the show. I mean, well, you know, I mean, my my question also is like, what does it mean that you know when Carrie gets when the carries get switched and female Carrie is stuck on the outside? You know, it makes you really think about like here you have this female character who's really only living half a life, um, uh-huh. and and she by her that's what she chooses, but right. it's it's sad to think about like the you know the you know, when, when he does die, she probably will die too. And she'll only have, have had half a life to show for it. And it's, you know, quote, the, the interesting parts as opposed to the boring parts as she puts it. But um, I don't know. It's, it's a bit troubling. Uh, I do really enjoy her, her fight scenes were, were really excellent here, of course, as always. And the dance scenes too. There's such a good physicality in the cast. They can, they can really move. No, what did you think uh, yeah. of the dance fighting? Like, what was it oh. early in this, like, season one? I mean, sorry, uh, episode one. I love. I did not even know what I was getting into, and I, I thought it was actually fantastic. Um, I like. I, you know, I, I feel like the, those heavier fantasies, sort of like, you know, receded as the season went on, and I mm-hmm. missed them a little bit because I was sort of getting into them. And that one is like, yeah, that, that's an, a particularly audacious one that I thought was really fun. Oh, I thought it was a real dance fight. Yeah. I, I, my notes, my notes says the dance off is physical masturbation and pursuit of a body, but look, looking <laughs> yeah, at it now. It yeah. yeah. I mean, but looking at it now, it's just sort of like, no, like they, they're dancing and that is going to be how you determine who has control of the, of, of the body. Um, <laughs> the dance supremacy will control that. Mm-hmm. So, um, Although talking about dancing, uh, I, I, I want to definitely give a shout out for episode one sex scene, the, the body swap sex scene. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, like that was the first time that they actually physically have sex rather than having sex mentally, right? Do they? Wait, I wait, thought wait, so. which, 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 which specific moment are you talking about? Uh, in season one, epi- sorry, season two, episode one. Um, uh-huh. when, when Stables come back, they go into the white room and the music starts playing and it's We Love You by the Rolling Stones. And I am so happy because for once somebody has used a non-completely generic Rolling Stones song for something. It also happens right. to be a Rolling Stones song I love. And I recognize that from the second you get – the song We Love You begins with like a bit of room tone. Like in the actual song, if you go and cue it up, it opens with room tone. And so you actually hear the room tone in the song and they're in this white room that like they've invented in, in their mind – but 
Uh, so it's like a physical room and a fictional room. But I, I did interpret it as them actually having physical intercourse because they switch bodies during it. Right? They're, they're, they do the body swap. I mean, while, while Dave has been gone for the year, Melanie has been, not Melanie, uh, Sid has been working on her body swapping skills. Like we yeah, see her swap yeah. bodies with a cat, which was wonderful acting and adorable. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> I oh, God, really... I loved it. I loved it. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, so she's been working on her body swap skills in terms of being more comfortable body swapping. And I, I, my read of the sex scene is that they did body swap. So they had sex and they had sex in each other's bodies, which is like, right. I think, with- ridiculously hot. Um, did, <laughs> did you think that they were just having sex in their minds again? or? Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was a return, especially because of the way like they intro it. It just seemed really dreamy. But what you say makes total sense that they had... I mean, I would almost think that, like, if you have, like, like, uh, like that type of mind-exploding sex that you're describing, like, they probably wouldn't be able to shut up about it for the rest of the season, but they never bring it up. <laughs> you're like, oh, that was really weird, right? <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, um, but no, no, that makes, that makes total, you, you've sold me on it. You've sold me on it. That I mean, but it also sense. makes, thank you, I mean, but it also makes me think, like, dude, you guys could have been having body swap sex, certainly not this whole time, because, like, you don't right. want to do that with, until you really, really trust somebody. But, like, they could have been having body sex a little bit earlier, is what I'm saying. And it just makes you wonder if, it's interesting, because David in the comics has multiple personalities. We don't mm-hmm. really know to what extent that's the case here, because you see these different parallel Davids in that later episode, you know, like, the, the different possibilities of how his life could have ended up. The one where right. he's medicated and working in this, in this day job. Um, Oh, I wanted, you know, and these different possibilities. So it's unclear, like, whether or not this David is a David who has multiple personalities. I don't think he does. But it made me think about, like, if a guy with multiple personalities, like, what is his comfort level in terms of being okay with being in somebody else's body, let alone a female body, like, actually inhabiting it, albeit briefly? Oh, well, but here, I do well, want – sorry. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. You, you've got my mind going on overdrive with the, with the sex concept. So, okay, here's a thought. Um, so part, like, can we agree that part of this season is about in the first season, Melanie explains that David can, that, well, one, she explains to David quite clearly, no, I, we don't, we don't actually think you have mental illness. We think that this person lives inside you and we're going to get that mm-hmm. person out and deal with that. And then season two is about, okay, either you do actually have mental illness or that person being in you for so long has affected you in such a way that you might have there's something remnant that you need to deal with and process that the work isn't done, that there needs to be work Mm -hmm. on your powers, but also work on yourself. Right. There's an, there's an idea there about, um, about, uh, well, maybe this isn't explicitly stated as such, but the idea of like a person's brain chemistry actually like affecting their mental state. So if he swaps bodies with Sid while they're having sex, does she experience that as well? Does she experience Mm. his his, his, his physical, uh, you know, uh, mental maladies in the same way, because I, I mean, I, so I guess this is a multi-part question. First, do you agree with what I said? Like that this like yes. season is sort of like, no, we actually do think that you have shit that you need to work out. It's not just yes. about getting a magic man out of your head. Yep. I completely <laughs> agree. And I'm so glad about that because I, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things we talked about last, you know, when you were on before, like it really matters to me that they are like, you can have superpowers and also be mentally disabled. Like you can be, these yeah. are all possible. You can be all these. And this one, it's very clear. Like, you have a mental illness and also you were being possessed. It's both of those right. things. Yes. And right. um, so, no, I think that that's pretty conclusive here, especially by the end of the season, especially by the end. Oh, of the yeah. Season. Oh, so. yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, that that's challenging. But yeah, I wonder if there's if there's any of that too. Like that, I mean, that's a sort of like you know supernatural intimacy that like you know only could exist in a show or comics or something. But mm-hmm. like, I wonder what what that did about the way that they relate to each other. If so, because like in, in season one, of course, Farouk is in there, but remember, like there is a thing, I guess what you're talking about with her developing her, her mutant power and like learning how better to control it. The problem in season one is that she can't. So like when she touches someone, it's like, you know, uh, it's like, it's like total catastrophic. Like that, Mm -hmm. that exchange doesn't just like happen casually. It's like, it drives everybody wild and like, you know, throws people off and people black out and all these things. So if, if in a sense, she has been able to like control it with her sense of self-control and her work on her powers, um, that does mean that she would have like subtly inhabited the mind of someone who's working through some mental stuff, like physically, like it's physical Mm -hmm. brain. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, that's a wild thought. I mean, I would imagine with the, just from what we know about Sid's powers that that, you know, is something that she, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't scrub off real quick. You would kind of, you would kind of keep with you. Um, hmm. That's very hmm. true. That's really interesting. Um, well, I have a question about the Sid episode for you though. What is uh-huh. the lesson that you think that she was really sending him back over and over again to learn? Cause I, I was- actually started to get exhausted about that <laughs> i know I, and i and i'll be honest i don't i was not satisfied with the lesson she tells him at all mm-hmm. i didn't hear it and i was like oh great like all right now that that's closure like i didn't i didn't get that i don't really know if i was agreeing with everything necessarily that david was saying either but yeah what the, what, what's this the way she puts how does she put the lesson of that of of the story about love, about oh god, oh, is it like oh, the love is a hot bath thing? I don't know if that's from that episode. I think, it but that doesn't is. really feel like it fits to me. No, like I mean, I thought that, like what what I I gathered, like all right, so so they keep returning specifically to the museum scene and her watching and her watching, like you know, a couple touch. Like I mean, I thought, and this is like overly simplistic, was this idea of like. Uh, a young woman who's like, you know, completely isolated by her abilities, like isolated from like the world. Like she's seeing a couple make out on a bench, but Mm -hmm. in reality, it's like the entire world is a museum to her. You cannot touch anything. You can only Mm -hmm. look at things. So like in a way that that landscape is the one that makes the most sense to her. And that's why that's Mm -hmm. such a, like a, 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 that's such an that's such an image and a sensation that she always goes back to because that's like I guess being there feels like just like you know uh, a, a poetic parallel to how she has to like live her life or feels like she has to um, and I mean the and I mean the 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 her her particular story and like you know what she does with her mom which was I thought really a really brave kind of that they they tell that story in season one if I'm not mistaken like yes her, they do they um, do that's like verbalized but it's not actually shown mm-hmm. I was pretty yeah. surprised that they actually showed that they actually showed it and like to me that was sort of a that was like a great um, a great vul- a great pact of vulnerability saying like look this is like so wrong this is socially wrong this is legally wrong um, but I need you to like understand this like aspect of, of me and like my desperation mm-hmm. to touch mm-hmm. others um, so like she was willing to like share that with him which I to me was really affecting like I thought that was really 
beautiful and, and, and fucked up. Like, you know, here, like, why don't I, why don't I show you this like horrible thing that my, that my, t- you know, teenage hormones uh, uh, went and pursued. Um, but it's still all about touching. Like I felt like a, a whole bunch of that episode was like about that physicality and the absence of it and what that like, you know, does to a person psychologically. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I didn't get the, her resolution her thing about the love thing. I, that did not satisfy me. And I couldn't tell if mm-hmm. like, am I just an idiot that the episode's not communicating it effectively to me? I love the episode. I love everything about that episode, except for that, except for the actual finale. I am 100% I am with, 100% you, on with you on that. Ooh, I'm getting an Ooh, echo. I'm getting an Are echo. you hearing an echo? I am currently not hearing an echo, no. Okay. Sound, sound singular. Okay. Is it because we're talking about jumping into different bodies and stuff? Yes, that is that is the reason why. No, it's okay now. It's, it's okay. Um, okay. Although speaking of jumping into different bodies, I you know, her power set has a slight in the sense that she can't just touch people however she wants. It sort of makes you think about Rogue from the X-Men, right? Of course, yeah. And I, the comics have this tendency of, if there's a decent creative team on it, uh, as Rogue is more or less in control of her powers, they'll have her showing more or less of her skin because, you know, when she's completely out of control of her powers, she needs to have her skin completely covered up or else she'll suck everybody's powers out from, like, accidental contact. Um, Mm -hmm. But when she's feeling more confident, like when she's running the Avengers, like she'll have gloves, but she'll have bare arms. So every time I see Sid walking around with gloves on her hands, but bare arms, I just keep thinking about Rogue um, and like what that symbolizes. And she, and Sid has really switched from a uniform of like long sleeves to this, to the season being gloves with short sleeves. Mm. Um, So that's sort of a symbol, I think for her having somewhat more control than, than she used to. Is there a thing like I'm sorry to sound like such an idiot, but I just haven't I haven't read X Men comics in a bit. The like uh-huh. I guess like the, the main difference aside from like powers necessarily, though Sid seems to take those powers, um, is like that it's a swap. Like it's not because Rogue like Rogue actually like absorbs essence from people. Like she can hurt yeah. somebody by like kind of yes. taking too much of them. Um, yes. And like and with and Sid doesn't do that at all. Right? Like she doesn't no. retain anything. She simply exchanges. Yeah, it's not a one for one. They're not, and I mean, really, none of the characters in this are one for ones for anybody from, from the actual comics at all, except for Shadow King, who does seem to be actually pretty much Shadow King. Um, But yeah, definitely different. And actually, one of the things I did want to say, like, do you feel like there's anything of the comics in this? Because I kind of don't. So little. (laughs) I mean, the 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 main, and I I, I'm sure we must have talked about this in, in the other time we spoke, but. The main thing is that, like, comics-wise, it's it's just a lot of the show, not all of it, but a lot of the show and a lot of the um, the, the 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 ideas in it are very Grant Morrison to me, and and are even more so this season. So now, like, there are aspects mm-hmm. of the show that like really make me think of like you know Grant Morrison, like like you know going crazy with like a secret government agency that's kind of bad, but is it? No, it's actually not that bad, but maybe it is, and there are little intrigues going on and all that shit. Um, in that well, way, of, mm-hmm. well, speaking of Grant Morrison, um, there was a, definitely an internet theory that was going around that was uh, that Admiral Fukuyama has lots of similar letters in his name to Amal Farouk. Admiral Fukuyama being the admiral who's running Division Three now, or yeah. Division Thirteen now, and um, and uh, on one of the podcasts, um, it was um, Le- Legion. 
Inside Legion podcasts, one of the guys says that Admiral Fukuyama kind of reminds him of Zorn from the comic, from Grant Morrison's The X-Men. Same shit. I thought the same exact thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was um, kind of surprised on the episode where he takes the basket. Like, I was waiting for some. I was waiting for it to be Clark. I don't know some shit. Like, I was like, who yeah. is this? Who is this under the basket? Really? I was totally waiting for the Zorn moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also they give you they give you a flashback, right, of how he came to be involved in the program. Like, you do get to see him briefly as a young man in school, which I thought was interesting. Um, I mean, you got a Zorn flashback too. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in the comic. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking about that constantly. It was, it just seemed right for that, but that doesn't appear to be the situation at all. You know, it's very confusing to me. Although one of the things that did bug me, like, it didn't bug me from a narrative standpoint, but did bug me from a political standpoint, was the idea that all society would have shifted so much over the course of the year David was gone, so that the rebels were actually integrated in division three over the course of a single year. Like that is not possible. Like entities like massive organizations don't work that way. You know, I fully believe that the wolf himself could have had a complete change of heart and it's an individual because of his experiences. Totally. But the idea that right. the whole agency and leadership could have completely shifted to be fully integrated within that time is just not, that's not how, big entities work. But I, I get that that's not something that they could have really dealt with otherwise. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, but, but the new paradigm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, the new paradigm of like, okay, now we work for the government and all, everyone's on the same team now. Team humanity was a little bit, a little <laughs> bit alighted too. <laughs> you know? It's, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's odd. like, I don't, it's odd, but I don't know how it couldn't have been. Like, I don't know how mm-hmm. they could have, yeah, presented in such a way that it's not. I mean, isn't it interesting too that um, isn't uh, isn't David's David's gone for nine months, right? Uh, a year. Oh, he's gone for a year. He's gone for exactly year, not nine months? months. I think it's for twelve what? months, but well, I think I think it's twelve months. You think you think it's nine? You think there's a baby or some such? Yeah, like some like some weird thing about him sort of like returning to a womb and then all of a sudden like emerging and everything's different. Like mm-hmm. because there's there is like this weird sort of theme about emergence in in the show. Like it they do the they do a really like clumsy um, allegory of the cave thing at some point. Yes, boy, like, it was like let was me funky. literally physically show you the allegory of the cave. <laughs> and like and I I mean it's been many 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 years since I read the allegory of the cave. But like am I all right? Again, uh, this just speaks to my poor memory, um, but. The isn't in part of part of uh, in Plato's allegory isn't isn't there an idea about captivity? Isn't it, it's not just that they're just I'm like not sitting familiar. there. If, if I'm not mistaken, that the the individuals who are experiencing the the shadow play on the walls are they're not doing it of their own accord. They are shackled there, and mm-hmm. then eventually they are released from their shackles, and that's when they emerge out in the world, and like the sun blinds them. And in the allegory of the cave that they present in the show, there is no captivity. But the show constantly has these like things about emergence. It's about, you know, uh, Farouk coming out of the hole. Um, it's about David coming out of his, his captivity, his kidnapping. Um, it's like everybody's always, there's always like this weird thing about coming out of a thing and like facing a realization. Um, but in that ca- in the way that they tell that story in the show, they don't show them as captives. They're just standing. They're just like they're in the cave, like of their own accord. 
I, I am 99% sure that captivity is a, is part of the allegory as it was written. Okay. Um, hmm. So that's interesting too. If only definitely because it's, captivity is, is an issue in this as well, right? Like yeah, you have, yeah. you have, you seeing how much uh, Lenny just wants to die without her freedom. Um, those sequences in the early episodes are amazingly good. Yes. And yes. then, you know, I mean, Melanie is being controlled. A lot of people are really being, being people captive, are and everybody is being they watched. trapped themselves in their rooms. Like they're literally self, they're self captivating. <laughs> like oh my like gosh. Yes. I also really love that. There's something when they first bring home Lenny, Le, bleh, sorry, when they first bring home Lenny, there's like a, there's a disorientation room. Like the room that they bring her into for her orientation is literally breaking yeah. the walls of physics. So it's an actual disorientation room. I was very, uh, that is totally my speed. Like, you know, I, I didn't roll my eyes at the use of heroin by Velvet Underground. I frequently do, but I was like, no, it's fine. I mean, I'll let you guys, I'll let you guys do it this time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm super, criti- I'm so critical of music use. It's like, but I was like, you know, I'll give you that. That's fine. Um, I was going to say, let's talk about, um, oh, uh, from, I like that they transitioned from Plato's cave depiction to then sort of a depiction of Trump, the narcissist, really like looking at that because it shifts right to the, um, you know, the woman, the peril of the woman expressing her opinion and, the other person is saying, like, no, it's a duck. I have a solution. I'm not changing my opinion at all. Um, <laughs> and then eventually when the uh, the other person, the man on the Internet, weighs seeing their disagreement on Twitter, it's a Twitter disagreement, right? Like, so you know this referencing Twitter conversation. It's going to be referencing Trump, basically. Um, right. And the man who's watching their exchange says, tweets at her, you sound fat. And, you know, it's like, that was an amazing retort, but when it, because that's exactly the kind of bullshit that, you know, trolls say to derail conversations, it's like, we're not going to engage with the material. We're just going to say you sound fat. But when the camera pulls back and you see that the man who said that is himself fat, I was like, guys, can you not be bigots? Like, because then that turns the joke from being a joke about how trolls operate into being a joke about fat people. And that's Mm. not a good joke because that's making a joke about fat people like fuck you so so right. I, I was like i was like i was like you guys really had me until that last like they didn't need for it to be oh look and see this guy's fat himself no that doesn't no that's not that's not cool <laughs> just to have it be an example of how people are digressing and you know doing and attacking people and stuff like that rather than making it be about whatever anyway i, I hopefully i'm making my point but no, you are. No, it was a weird cheap. It was a weird cheap shot that was like untotally not needed. Yeah, it would be great to not do that when people are watching the show. I also, but I also enjoy things. They were. I enjoyed moments though. Like I, there's this great line where Melanie says, "How do you know you're real?" And Carrie's like, "I'm real because when I hit people, they fall down." And Melanie says, right. "Oh, cause and effect." I mean, there was a lot. That was a good episode. There was a lot happening in that overall. But there really yeah. were like two whole segments of science narration. There was Plato's cave and this digression of um, how on the internet and in the same up in the same episode. Um, Mm. But they had really great visuals, you know, a number of moments. There's Lemmy, Lenny and the glowing car. Definitely later in the season felt like a, like something out of repo man. Number of peaks moments. Right. 
<laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, no, there's a, there's like a, a but I, f- I feel like the overall like feel of it was very, um, you know, like kind of like 60s mod film, very like mm-hmm. Antonioni stuff with like, it was like Antonioni and Jodorowsky. Like, yes, kind of totally. Stuff. Yeah. For folks who are not familiar with these filmmakers, you should probably go watch their movies now because they're some <laughs> of the best. Um, yeah, like uh, there, there's a whole sequence where they're sort of looking through the desert and they're just shifting um, panels on a screen. Right, 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 right. It yeah, reminded sort of, me of, sort of, like, of the Instagram app that you use to make a collage. It was like, okay, you're referencing specifically like new tools. Uh-huh, but that's uh-huh. what that felt like. It was, Have they you know, ever done it wasn't, that? Yeah, no. In the show? Those Have panels, they ever done no, that? I don't think yeah. so. They've done that. They've done that in Fargo. They've done the like mm. the split panels a few times in Fargo, which is also Noah Hawley's show. You know, I had to quit season three. I was like, this is really smart, but the amount of fat hatred it had actually. So this is a theme, I guess, for him, and mm. the amount of like, I don't think the show is anti-Semitic, but I was not ready to listen to the anti-Semitism of the characters in the show in the current moment. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I basically noped out of the first one of the huge anti-Semitic rants because I was like, you know what? I, I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. I'm just saying I do not have the appetite to listen to this now. But I, I, I definitely mean, I think... see. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's a show that has artistic merit, no doubt. Um, are you? Did you watch Fargo season three and all that? Or I did. Um, I, I think season three is is honestly trash except for Ooh. episodes eight and nine, which are two of like my favorite episodes of television of like the past decade. Duly and it noted. sucks well. because like, I, it's hard to sell that to someone. It's like, look, the show's no good. But once you get like eight is like a absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, poetic, thoughtful, like just, it's like a, it's a full movie. And, and weirdly it's directed by the guy. It's the only him He directs that in the next following episode, but it's directed by the director of the girl with all the gifts. Mm, Very random. Don't know who that is. Um, okay. Uh, it was like this, uh, this, this brilliant zombie uh, movie with a little black girl at the center. Oh, it's really inspired and great based on a, on hmm. a book by um, Mike Carey, I believe. Um, oh, the comics writer. Yeah, yeah, he wrote he wrote a novel, um, and they turned it into a movie, which I think he also wrote the screenplay for. Movie's great. That episode of Fargo is amazing. That's really hard for me to be like, hey, watch seven hours of like not the best stuff <laughs> to get to something that's absolutely astonishing. Um, no, I think, but I think overall that season is really bad. Um, well, I, I definitely think, and I I really think that um, you know what? I'm not gonna get sidetracked on that. So I have a question for you. <laughs> uh, what do you feel like about the season's handling of Ptolemy? And his character arc. You know, you know what's messed up. I have actually not seen Solo yet. You've seen Solo, I believe, right? I have. I have. Yes. So I, I've heard the thing in Solo. Am I, am, am I wrong here that um, that a black woman is put into the ship? Is like transferred to the ship's computer? Oh no, no, a woman. Uh, the the voice actress is the voice act. Yes, the voice actress who does who who who's uh, L three, who's this amazing robot who fighting for freedom for robots for droids rather um, uh-huh. the droid she ends up getting put her into the ship uh, she does not I mean she's a droid and the actress who plays her is white okay all right I don't, where did where did I get that but she's up? a freedom fighter you know she's a freedom fighter who's 
gets and there, there's a black woman there's a black character a black woman who gets killed in the movie and it really should have been the white guy who she's in a relationship with there was no reason for her to die as opposed to him like one of them needed to die and it could have just been the white guy so see, look, maybe that's what you're that's, thinking. That's of. crazy. Yeah, no, I think in my in my avoidance of spoilers, I somehow like conflated those two things that happened mm-hmm. into one thing. I see that. I um, see that. No, all right, because my thought when when the autonomy thing happened was just that like it it, it upset me because he's mm-hmm. like the most prominent black character in the show. I feel mm-hmm. like season one does him sort of dirty. Like he's not in it enough. He's so exciting at the start of the season. And I'm like, wow, like this is a character we're gonna get into, and then he sort of vanishes for most of it. And I was like, what the hell, like. And he's just kind of, I mean, he's, it's, he doesn't completely disappear. He just becomes no. less important. Um, yeah. And like that bummed me out because I thought he was a really cool, I thought his power is super cool. And I was just like, oh, I really want to like, you know, sink my teeth into this, this characterization. And then he's gone. Um, and so in this season, I was like ready to get back there. And so when they did this to him, I was like, I mean, it's not erasing him from the show, but I mean, is, is the, it's never totally described, but the concept is, is that he's dead and now he's interfaced with that AI. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be able to bring him back in some way. I don't think it's staying there, but I still was like, okay, bold move there, guys. You're going to marginalize your black male character for a while. Okay. Right? But, you know, also, I'm also bored, and it's finally ended, I suppose, but I was getting bored of Jermaine Clement, of Oliver, getting being piloted around by Amal. Yeah. I was ready to see him be himself and not just be a vehicle for Amal Farouk. Yeah, he has, he, has that, he has that one, like, sparkling moment where he's just like, I'm going to fucking kill you or whatever. You know, like, he's like, I'm going to get you, like, or whatever he says. I was really enthused at that moment. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, this is really, okay. And then that's literally the one moment he has. Other than that, he is sort of just at, at the, you know, at the mercy of Farouk and, and knows it. And he, you know, sort of, I don't know, fights back with a little bit of snark occasionally, but he's still, like, just doing whatever he tells him to do. And it is, it is like, it is sort of tiresome. I mean, that's why like his torture is, is, is so bizarre because mm-hmm. like you're watching the torture and you're like, can you get anything out of like, are you torturing like this captive, this like captive uh, soul? Are you really going to get anything out of that? Is that, is that going to be ultimately successful? Couldn't Farouk just like be prodding you into hurting Oliver on purpose isn't that a, you know, potential, yeah. uh, you know, truth? Oh, I'm um, glad that the show takes torture is wrong as a given. That's a nice change <laughs> from some other television shows. So that's political uh, point in its favor. Mm, I hadn't really, really thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, that's not even another. Po- yeah. Yeah. And actually another political point in its favor is in this episode where we have David's different personalities living their own lives. You see, um, in his version of him where he's taking medication and is working a day job as when the cops get called on him, all they do is escalate, which is exactly what happens yeah. when you call cops on people with mental illness. All they do is escalate. So I was like accurate. Um, right. Reminder folks, that's what happens when you call the cops on people having emotional problems. They only know how to do one thing, which is have fights and escalate things. Um, right. Take notes. Um, so, so that was another point there. Uh, what did you think of the episode where you see the different, the different options of how David could have ended up the butterfly effect episode? I, I liked seeing like the, um, the example of him as the white man who can only fail upwards version of his right. life, really. 
and how he took over from his old boss, I, which is funny because there's no reason they couldn't have ruled side by side, right? I, I was like, oh, wait, so she's only his assistant. They're not ruling side by side. That's that's some white man bullshit. Um, right. But, yeah, what did you think of that episode? I Like, I almost – I didn't mind it, but I almost want to say that it feeds into your your comment about the season dragging. That's like a clear, that's like a drag point just because nothing. I like really that happened. episode. I, I do I too, episode, but I do think though. it. I think it drags the season. But I, I know I, I did like it. Um, even though, like, I, I also can't say that I exactly understood it. I, I almost feel like aspects of it would have been possibly more effective for me if they had somehow threaded them into the re- the entire season rather than focused them into one episode, because mm-hmm. it, you know, that like, I mean, one, another theme in this, in the season is about potential and about like, you know, like is the butterfly effect type stuff. Um, and that would almost be an interesting, uh, you know, counterpart to a lot of the things that happen in the season. It's like every now and then maybe like take a dip and see what other David could have been or something isolated on its own. It just felt like it was there and gone for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask a question that was sent to us by my city councilman, Carlos Manchaca of Brooklyn um, for a discussion here, which is David's journey is about returning to his memories, but his mind blocks them from people trying to help him. How does trauma in our lives cause this? thought that was an interesting topic hmm hmm you know what like how 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 are david's traumas really expressed or shown are like have they been like like really clearly revealed they're referred to and his reaction to his traumas are clearly shown like when he's using a lot of drugs or you know uh getting into a you know, like in a very conflicted state. Um, but I feel like the traumas themselves, I feel like we only know the traumas themselves from like the shadows that they've left um, more than like, you know, specifically the things he's fighting. We know him from a chalkboard story. We know them from like the idea of what Farouk has been doing to him. Um, so that's an, the idea that like he's blocking them like that immediately makes me like reminds me of when Patonomy is first walking through David's memories with him and he keeps kind of like fussing with things and, and changing things. And, and, and then at some point, like, he's like, stop doing it. And he's like, what, I'm not doing anything. Like he seems genuine in that he's not doing anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And then that's because the shadow King is kind of like blocking and messing with them. Really? Yes. Yes. It's weird. But like, but in this season, there is no shadow King. I don't think that there's an effective exploration into David's traumas. There's just like the kind of like new things he's doing. Um, and he does, and Patonomy doesn't get to walk through his memories anymore, which is kind of sad. Um, hmm. Well, I, I, I definitely feel like I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. You're really, I think you're right. Like we don't actually see, looks like we don't see the re- interactions between him and his parents. Right. And like, what's one of the main vectors of trauma. Right. right? <laughs> and we don't, we said, so we don't, we don't actually even see that happening to him. Um, yeah. We, yeah, interestingly, we, we do we do get to, which I think so. I think it's like yeah, like the trauma is still keeping us from even participating in those memories. Mm-hmm. Um, we do see, you know, not memories of Lenny's life pre pre this, but we see echoes of Lenny's life and like what she does when she's not in a mental institution 
or mm-hmm. in a disorientation room or being trapped in a 60s hellhole. Oh, I loved that when 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 Lenny is completely controlled by Amal for, in, in Amal Farouk's domain rather than in Amal Farouk and David's domain, she's suddenly hyper femme because, like, that's what he's doing to people, right? He's like, okay, now that right. I completely own you, you're going to be super femmed up. Whereas David, being not a guy from the 1920s, is... We're like, sure, she can be, you know, sort of tomboyish. That's fine. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. but we do see Lemmy. We, you know, we do get to see Lemmy, like, kind of in her in her natural element, um, seducing ladies and discombobulating things and rocking out to kick out the jams by the MC5. Um, but we also, Man, also get, when's the last time you heard that show, that song in a show? And like, the show. I can't that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, I play like, it a lot, and it does. It is sort of a song that announces itself, like, and now yeah. it's time to kick out the jazz motherfuckers. But it's a very good point. I, you know, one of my discussion questions I definitely was going to ask is like, what do you feel like was the best pop culture reference, be it musical cue or otherwise? And then I was going to ask which is like the most grown worthy. So well, let me ask you, like, what was the best <laughs> pop culture reference, musical or otherwise? Uh, I have. Let me let me let me ponder that for a minute. What was what was your favorite pop culture reference? Well, obviously, I was overly excited about the music. We love you by the Rolling Stones. But, um, I, you know, I, I also think, like, ah, God, my favorite. Yeah, that was, you know, they have a references to Labyrinth in, that, in the later episode where you see David as an evil king who's taken over the world, and he's playing with that, that with, like, that crystal the ball, ball, basically. Yeah. And his hair yeah. is finally getting vertical, but David's hair being vertical is kind of like Gareth from the Labyrinth. So that's something, <laughs> but just generally like me being me, like whatever is the, whatever is the most recent deep musical cut they've made uh, is probably what I'm most happy with. Although my, actually, this is not official probably, but we started in my household, you know, the um, Vermilion, the robot ladies, the robot mm-hmm. individuals that are cast as actresses and also have mustaches and sort of triangular yeah. shaped hair. So we began referring to them as the Tony Iomis because they look like Tony Iomi from Black Sabbath. Yeah, so you could yeah, refer to yeah. them as the Tony's Iomi as the plural set, or the Tony's Iomi are now fighting against the Minotaur. The Minotaur <laughs> looks like he's from a Francis Bacon painting. Um, yeah. So that, there was a lot going on in there. Um, yeah, the but whenever the I see, you know, the Minotaur, we haven't even, we haven't even talked about the Minotaur. Is it, I mean, it's not, I don't know if it's fair as a pop culture reference, but they, they mentioned the Shi'ar, which I thought was pretty fucking amazing. Oh, when? You catch that? Carrie nope. mentions it when he's looking at a piece of tech, and he's like, it doesn't look like Shi'ar. Oh, shit. That's they wonderful. Actually, I know. That's like the first time I think the Shi'ar, the Shi'ar has been mentioned in the show, maybe in a live-action uh, uh, you know, Marvel show, I think, possibly. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that was like totally wild. I was like, Oh, well, wait, wait, what? <laughs> like, you guys are, are actually, like, articulated the she. You guys know the Shi'ar exists? What the fuck? Um, yeah, that totally blew me away. It's pretty quick, but it decidedly there. I had to, like, rewind it to double check. I was like, no, he did say that. Yeah, we got um, the Shi'ar. So that was your favorite, let's say, for now, then. That well, kind of you, blew what me was, what was What is a grown, a grown-worthy pop culture moment that you experienced? Uh, I, all right. I have to admit, I mean, as much as like I was raised on the beats, I was kind of over the beat, like Oliver's beat stuff. I just, I like, I, I, I just, I 
I, I appreciate it. I love it. I mean, it's obvious. It's the, the, their, their beat references are incredibly obvious. They're not like deep cuts or anything like that. No, that's true. So like, I, I literally, I, I, just, wow. like, whatever. I literally have a note right now that says Jermaine Clement reciting America by Ginsburg. I kind of wish it went on longer. I see that you have exactly the opposite opinion. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I always like, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I, again, I need to overstate. Like, I mean, I, I like I was a poet. I, I, I love the beats. I was read, I read tons mm-hmm. of beats stuff when I was younger that like, you know, that was my, my doorway into drugs when I was like a preteen, but <laughs> like, it's all like, it is like, it's going to be like, you know, Ginsburg America. It's going to be something like that. It's not going to be, you know, DA Levy or something <laughs> or somebody. It's going to be, right. it's going to be great. You know, it's very, yeah. Deep. Especially America. Yeah. Like the fact that I, yeah, no, the fact that I'm like, I know exactly what poem that is, is a sign of, and I'm not deeply invested in poetry. It's a <laughs> sign of a, well, for me, like my most grown worthy moment was like singing behind blue eyes. Like not only is that the, the who, one of the worst songs by the who, but like using it in that particular context has already been done before. It, 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 it like it's literally been used for that purpose before. Um, right. One thing that I note though is they have used a number of super basic ass songs that they've had their do their own versions of, and mm. you know usually when a show makes their own version of something or use an obscure version of it, like in this case they have an interesting they have like a, there's like an EDM version of White Rabbit and any by Jefferson Airplane. Anytime a show uses White right. Rabbit, I'm like this close to stabbing them because there are other songs <laughs> that could serve that purpose. Um, but, you know this is a show in which she literally does where I'm off a rook literally baits her and down the hole using a white rabbit as bait, a live rabbit as bait. Um, but, uh, but the EDM version of it, I was like, actually, I, I like this. This is kind of cool. I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you get past me this time. Um, but, uh, oh yeah. So like, but they, when they, when they use this, there's a beautiful kink song called nothing in this world can stop me worrying about that girl, which I feel like is like, a pretty well-known kink song, but not basic as fuck kink song. Um, but they had Dan Stevens record a version of it for this. And I think the reason why they did it other than just like, you get to save money off paying the kinks money <laughs> is but when you're having someone from the uh, cast record it or have an off-brand version of it, it means that you're not thinking at, unless, unless you're me and I'm just thinking about this. Mm-hmm. When you have the covers, it's, it's that it moves the song away from the original singer. So rather than thinking about like, this is, you know, Ray Davies talking about how there's nothing in this world can help me stop me from worrying about that girl is that it's actually, no, this is David feeling it. So it makes it closer to the character um, mm-hmm. and it makes it less about the cultural reference and more about the song itself. So I think that's why they do it. Also, it saves money. Yeah. That, uh, hmm. They've been good covers, though. You know, buying them. I know they, they I, are. I but, have them. Yeah. But now, but them now you, now you've got me, you've got me cooking on something, which again is like this idea of like transference and like swapping bodies. There is a sort of thematic basis for for doing a character cover <laughs> in a in a show like this, maybe more so than mm. some other shows. Um, because yeah, it's about like swapping bodies, about people living inside other people. Um, there's like inhabitation, uh, if that's a word. Uh, so yeah, like 
I almost feel like they can get away with it more than most. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Never thought about that though. Um, hmm. Well, speaking of, of uh, speaking of the Minotaur, let's talk about the Minotaur. That was like completely out of Pan's labyrinth. The physical way it moved. Yeah, those totally Del Toro type stuff. Oh, Del Toro! Look at that. I didn't even mean it's a double. It's a double. It's sort of a pun. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, no, it was. Uh, I, I don't fully understand the Minotaur. I'll, cards on the table. I don't totally get the. The, the, the presence of the Minotaur, what the Minotaur like specifically means. Like the Minotaur is a physical manifestation of the sickness of the what is it? The catalyst, catalyst, the the thing that the the thing oh, that, that I didn't read it that way, but it could well, be. Tell sure. me, tell me, tell me, tell me how you read the Minotaur because I honestly found it quite perplexing. I mean, it's basically the dragon, right? It's it's the it's protecting. It's protecting that a minotaur is always in the maze, so it's mm. protecting this maze. It's keeping the people trapped down there. It's keeping them separated from the folks up up above. That's it. I didn't read it as anything beyond that. And why is it a minotaur? Because it's a maze. Why are they trapped in a maze? Because that's where you trap someone. You know. Right, but but also, but minot- the minotaur is also, um, you know, uh, uh, which call it, uh, a a child that you're ashamed of. Right, mm-hmm. because, like Mino, the King Minos puts the puts the like puts his deformed son in the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Like that's where the oh, Minotaur is. Um, and like there is, you know, a lot of stuff about like parenthood and parentage in the show, obviously. And there's also like these weird ideas, which is really just like extra cyclical and fucked up. Which is that like Farouk is an adult man who gestated inside David's baby brain. And mm-hmm. so he's sort of like David's dad in some ways because he's taught him shit mm-hmm. and given sure. him a lot, except like, he, you know, he's also inside of him, which is a twisted notion of your father, like, you know, being this fucked up father also living inside you. And now that father's gone. And, you know, I, I always feel like there's weird father son crap that goes on between the two of them every time they actually interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, and the Minotaur is a, it's like symbolic of a son that you're ashamed of. Yeah. Dude. Yep. I'm on board with that. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah. It was I a really, believe. It was a great design though. I mean, I like visually, I thought it was, I thought it was really, and I love how like, it's sort of, it's the reason I, 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 I'm totally inventing this, but the reason why I really connected it to the catalyst that is the word. Yeah, I think it's the catalyst. Yeah, um, the catalyst. Thing that makes everybody chatter. Um, the reason why I connected to that is that the Minotaur is in, I want to say, episode one? Is he? In, he's early on, like, he's just, like, oh. in Melanie's room. Isn't, he, isn't there that like, weird scene where, like, he's sort of, like, off slightly, like, to the left of camera and then, like, storming Ooh, off? That's and terrifying it, as hell to think about. I, I do not remember it. Um, but you're probably right. I watched everything very, very straight out. <laughs> He's he's early on, like he appears. He becomes obviously like he's used like he's used like when they're fighting the disease and when they're you know when they're, everybody's like in their own heads and that like crazy uh, scenario. Um, but he's in there before that. He's like there. It's shown that he's like on the edges of everything. Um, and then mm-hmm. at the end, he's like he has he, he he's physically present and like you know hurting like he fights the Vermilion, fights the Tony Iommi's and all that. Thank uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so yeah, but like I. I couldn't help connecting him in some way. Like he was some manifestation of that disease. 
but I'm inventing that. Like that's not really written out at all. I just felt like he's he's in the division three tunnels like for a while and then he becomes more useful. And then yeah, he's in he's in the labyrinth of their mind. He's in that labyrinth as a protector as well later on, and then he's like fighting them to protect his horde. Um yeah, there's a bunch going on with him though. I almost feel like I have to rewatch the whole thing and like think about what that Minotaur really becomes by the end of it. Um, but I do think that there's symbolism there. Well, I'm definitely getting a lot from that. I mean, there's definitely some broader symbols. Like you have this actually this up this season, you finally had a real Clockwork Orange visual reference scene, and of course that calls back to them being at Clockworks, right? Being the mm-hmm. name of the old therapy place. But another just broad visual theme are these honeycombs and tessellations. Yeah. And you know, tessellations, which tessellations is like any combination of shapes that can fit together in a repetition pattern is really at the center of um, Muslim architectural design and, you know, in the Middle East, Uh, those are the motifs. And, you know, you're not allowed to have depictions of any representational art at all um, in this, you know, in the strictest interpretations of the Quran. So you had um, rather than having sculptures of like angels or fruit or whatever, you would like literally have ge- geometric designs. So I feel like partially it's referencing Amal Farouk having the tessellations, you know, in the backgrounds of people's rooms, even in, in division, in division three, like, you, you know, and you're in whatever it is, you're in their rooms and they have these, these tessellations behind them. They're always behind Amal Farouk, but often, you know, the tessellations are honeycomb. And a honeycomb is a structure that's built by bees, and it's it's built as it's the bees society. So the tessellation is what holds together the society and the collective action of bees. And so tessellations are how we hold together as in a pattern, how we form a pattern in society. Um, so I think it's a visual motif that's both connecting it to a malfaruk, like culturally but also sort of reminding you that we're all supposed to be fitting together into this like flawless web of life, but you know, but that doesn't actually, we don't actually hold together that way. There are actual fractures from it. Hmm. But I mean, isn't the whole thing with their room designs that the, that those, that those honeycomb patterns are like, are like perverted in a weird way. Like Mm -hmm. there are a few that are like all together and then there's like, they're kind of like, you know, disintegrated into tiny ones. Yep. And it's like a, it's a very weird, it's very uh, memorable uh, visual kind of thing, which I was honestly always trying to unpack because, you know, okay. Like, so at, at its face value, I think like, well, they, they use this motif specifically in, in the division because they want everyone to kind of be orderly. And like you know, mm-hmm. like do their job and to fit be together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They want they want the hive worker bees. Uh, yep. Totally. Um. But then, like, if they do, then why do they add these weird sort of flourishes, uh, to that pattern? Why isn't it just a simple, a simple pattern? Why is it like messed up in that in the way that it is? Just because it, it can't simple. be maintained. Because of course it's going to fail. So like they're trying, but it's not going to ultimately. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's like that. Every time there was like a scene in someone's room, like my eyes immediately got absorbed by that pattern and the way that it kind of got all messed up. I couldn't mm. like not look at it every single time. Um, it was really distracting. Uh, but well, yeah, I mean, I guess, that's it. I guess it's like showing that it's like, yeah, the, the, the structure cannot hold. And speaking of insectish motifs, I, whenever I look at um, the, uh, 
the, the, the compass that David made her, the, the compass of foreshadowing, as I named it, that David made for uh-huh. Sid to wear, uh-huh. it, it looks like a spider's web, don't you think? Oh, man, you're going to have to. I, I remember having thoughts when, like, I saw the, uh, the original compass. I'm going to look. It's in, a, it's in a box, right? It's like a square. Is it in a square it's thing? In, no, it's, no it's, in, it's in like a, like a hexagonal thing, like a spider web again. Ah. I think. Hmm. It's hexagonal as well. Just so. like the. That's interesting. Huh. I'm double checking. I know. I, I, why isn't there like a more obvious. <laughs> why didn't someone just like upload 15 images of the compass? <laughs> I do not see it. That's really. Okay, this is going to bother me. Um, all right. I have to pull through the visual apps. It opens, um, though. It's like a device that opens. Well, it, what does, was, it, uh, it actually it does have a compass in it, yes. Yeah, and you're, so you're saying that, like, you're saying, like, that, like it, the, the gift was supposed to sort of, like, refer to, to something insectile? Yeah, it's a spider's, spider's web, so it's also like she's been caught in it. Hmm. So he's catching her. He's giving her the compass so she can always find him. Right. But he's catching her. Because it's a spider's web, she's trapped by it. Right. I mean, it's. I mean, like, yeah, like that. You know, that also perverts the whole. You know, like that line in season one, which is like really uh, kicked in the face uh, near the end of the season uh, about getting lost together. It's like, yeah, that would sort of further emphasize like how it's not about getting lost; it's about like him sending her to where he wants her to go, which could mm-hmm. be to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, I, are we going to talk about like the at the end? Are we going to talk about sure, the? Let's talk about the end. Just, let's do it. What do you think? Are you are you, you do you read a uh, Valiant, Valiant comics? Valiant comics, not much. Yeah. All right. So like, the thing that immediately like sent me to is that in Harbinger, which is like one of the foundational uh, of of Valiant, both old Valiant and new new Valiant, um, the main one of the main characters is Peter Stanchek who is very much a legion type. He is like, he's not, he's not schizophrenic and he's not, he doesn't have um, MPD, but he uh, does have like, like he's like one of the most powerful uh, psyots. Uh, so he has all these, like he can control people's minds and stuff. And there's a, and he's like a, you know, a bullied, sullen young teenager. And so he actually uses his powers to essentially rape this girl, Chris. Um, that's never shown explicitly in the comic. It's clearly referred to. Uh, and he, th- like, he's at the time is like doing a lot of drugs and is a very damaged person. Um, and he eventually like realizes what he, what he's done. And she has to like go through therapy and go through a lot of work to kind of like figure out what happened, decide if she wants to forgive him or not decide what she wants to do with him because now he wants to like come help her. And it's very messy and complicated as it should be. Um, and there's always this sort of like thing with him because he's positioned first as a hero. But when this is given to you, like that's immediately like, you know, thrown into disarray, if not outright re- automatically rejected, like a rapist cannot be a hero, like period. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no real, you know, f- there's no fable way to get to that. It doesn't work. Uh, so and, like, yeah, and, he, and he, and he does, in this, like, at the end of the season, he has sex with her while lying, basically. Yeah. He does, so he, has, he does. 
He does something to he does something to her. Well, he, he 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 makes her believe that what that the bad experience that she had did not happen, and they have right. sex on false pre they have sex on false pretenses. So she he basically right. raped her. Right, right, and like and I mean Ben, I mean he also like you know like figuratively raped her just by like fucking with her brain, which I don't think is something he ever does. Um, but that's interesting, right? Because earlier in the season, he, like. He does that a bit in the season with other people. He gets mm-hmm. he gets in people's heads for like, and that and like you know in season one I want to say usually what he does is more sort of physical, you know like he throws people around or like you know, kind of, it, it, you see like at some point in the season he also explodes them, um, but he doesn't like, you know get into their circuitry. And in this season like he does that like after they go through like the whole um, after they they fight their they go through their mazes their interior mazes like he does that thing where he kind of like touches people's heads and does you know fixes them in some way or takes the mm-hmm. takes out the delusion um yeah. that's like him getting up in their up in their wires and like he never did that before and he gets up in Sid's wires which is itself like a rape like if anything uh the, the person that he professes this love to that should be someone that he's never willing to do that to for anything even just like you know, memory erasure or anything like that. Um, you would you would assume or hope that that's not ever going to be a choice that he makes, and he made it. Um, I, I mean, I I personally really liked the way this season ended, as much as I hated what his character did, and you know, in ways like I loathe his character. But I think it like the ending the show in this way is painting to them. It, painting themselves into such a detailed corner that like, they're going to have to really come up with some shit to get out of it. And I'm sort of down to see if they can rise to the challenge. So I enjoyed it on those terms, but I mean, it was, uh, it was hard to watch. I thought, I thought it was pretty, pretty tough to, 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 to work through because I feel yeah. like I spent a lot of this season trying to figure out if I thought he was a hero or not trying to figure out who I believed that they really thought he was the villain or not. And I almost feel like the show is telling you, no, he is the villain. There you go. I think that um, you also see like Shadow King successfully manipulate everyone, right? Like yeah. he's manipulated Melanie, he's contaminated that. Um, he's just really he he's won. This is the end of the season. He's won in like every single way, really. Yeah. Yeah. He and just people took are a taking him. And people are taking him as as being real, you know? So like, what is the, what is the delusion? Is the delusion that David deserves love? Is the delusion that Farouk is the good guy? Yeah. The delusion is that Farouk is the good guy, but also in the context of what he just did, I mean, you know, he definitely thinks he deserves love and he's not actually acting as an honest person in that way. And, you know, until that, until that point, I'd actually had a lot of tolerance and patience for David. You know, I really appreciated the show yeah. that the movie was showing, like, yeah, he has superpowers and he also has mental illness, and you could have both of those things. Um, right. And certainly, like, Amal Farouk did trigger the bad things that David has done this season through his manipulations, but having mm-hmm. sex with Melanie, Melanie, sorry, having sex with Sid after like erasing her mind so that she wouldn't be angry with him is freaking rape because he knows he did that because she wouldn't want him um, if she knew the truth. Right. So that seems like that's on him and that's not on Amal Farouk. Ha- hasn't 
There are multiple times, though, in this season that David lies, no? Yeah, but not there's but there's lying and there's lying, you know. There's a difference there's for like, sure. Like like this was lying because he knew she wouldn't want to be with him if she knew the truth or if she knew what happened. Right. Right. No, they no, could they're... say like actually no, he didn't actually torture Oliver, so therefore he's but he's doing it without her consent to remove it from her mind. That's it. Right. Right. And I mean, it's also like, it just, I mean, it's, it, we almost don't have to come up with more reasons why it's fucked up, but it also like just shows like how little he trusts her that like mm-hmm. he can't express himself to her and like feel, uh, feel affirmed. So she, so he like resorts to something like this, which is, you know, bad in both directions. So, but I, but I feel like there, there are multiple points in this season where he's not telling everybody the whole truth about things. And that was the stuff that first started to communicate to me that, that something's wrong with David. Like, I think something is wrong with him. Like, he's, he's, he's pursuing, a, a, like, a route to an end totally based on, like, the, his own, like, concepts of justice and what he wants to happen and they are dismissive of his like teammates. Like, I mean, there's a, I feel like there's a bunch of this season where he's just total, like what other people plan to do is utterly irrelevant to him. He mm-hmm. is like you know, following his own like threads and the more, and like it, it just, he just kept doing stuff like that. And the more he kept doing that, I was like, well, you know, that's really, like, he could explain all these things to them. Like he could actually stop and be like, okay, this is what I'm going to do, but he chooses not to. And that made, made me start to be suspicious of him. So when it kind of like mm-hmm. resolves here, it, 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 that made sense. Like that journey, I was like, oh, and now he's here. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. So we're coming up on an hour 30. We should probably wrap. Do you have um, – I was glad that they brought back some animation this season, a couple of different episodes. I'm all for there being more animation. <laughs> Um, what, what are you looking? What, what, what are you looking forward to? Like, what would you like to see the show doing in the future? I mean, I want to. I, I, I'm ready for David as the villain. Mm. I'm ready to see. And I'm ready Sid, to see what that looks like. Sid as the hero. Yeah. Yep. And if anybody says that that's just playing into stereotypes for people with mental illness or villains, I would like to point out that Sid very clearly has OCD, right? So <laughs> right, he can be the right. hero with the mental illness. And he can be a villain with a mental illness. But, you know, right. we see, like, a lot of behaviors from Sid in the flashbacks. So Sid doing things that are just, you know, very normal things that OCD's person would do. So she can, she can be our hero who has a mental illness and is a hero anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, because remember, um, I was disappointed when it turned out that there was a reason why she didn't like to be touched. I thought it was, like, a cool thing. Like, yeah, she doesn't like to be touched, and that's okay, and that's her personality trait. And then it's like, no, actually, it's because of her powers. And I said... That's disappointing. So uh, now her like personality difference can be like she okay she doesn't want to be touched because she actually is trying to control her powers, but also she has OCD and that's okay. So no, that's um, what a great thesis about the show is that like they've they've proven a few times here that they're not relying on on powers as a shorthand for for mental illness. Like they they it, mm-hmm. it, it seems like they might be headed in that direction, but then they don't go there. So yeah, it's really it's really true. That's a that's a continued strength of the show. Um, Indeed, yay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, if you don't, if you have any any final thoughts or. I'm trying to I'm trying to think. Um, hmm. 
No, we talked about we talked about Pete Stanchek. You should read New Valiant, Lana. <laughs> you should. I should read New Valiant. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, the art always looks super strong on those books. Um, they they definitely spend money on the art division, but I guess to put a final put point onto City Councilman Congressman Chaka's question, like I think the show is still showing us so much of how his David's worst memories, yeah, like you said, are blocked out that we can't even see them or engage in them. I think it shows um, how extreme that can be, that even into season two, we don't always see it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, yeah, it definitely means that it's things we should ask ourselves about um, how are we going to be able to share the things that happen to us in conversations with people in a healing context Um but I also I have, don't want people to go into the whole force, uh, the whole false memories, you know, hysteria that was a huge issue in the eighties. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. No. No, we don't want that, especially on a show that wants to tackle delusion. Um, yeah. Oh, I just got hit with something. You know mm-hmm. what? You know what I want? You know what I want from the next season? You know what I want to see? I want to see at least one episode or a character that explores this idea that I feel like Grant Morrison himself also loves to explore, but this has been in lots of comics by lots of different people. I would like to hear the story of some of the division employees, like the Mm -hmm. soldier, like the young Mm -hmm. soldiers that they employ at first because they're immune to the disease. Um, Mm -hmm. And, or the older ones. Like I remember a really memorable aside in the invisibles is when like, there's a, there's a issue that's all about like one of the, one of the kind of enemy enemy, you know, blank soldiers that all the main characters in the book like gleefully murder all the time and it was yeah. like an entire like you know perspective from their point of view i would like to see that because like they mm-hmm. that's some of like the most comic stuff in the show is that like these people just get like you know evaporated and turned into a blood mist and they're just gone and we never <laughs> think about them or know their names i would like to i would like to know a little bit about at least one of them i like that i like that and i would also say to listeners who are in this for the show and aren't as much comfortable you should probably check out the Invisibles, guys. I, oh, yeah. I think that Grant Morrison's run on the new X-Men and Grant Morrison's work on the Invisibles are definitely comics the folks should check out if they're interested in this. Any any other comic suggestions for folks who are fans of this uh, series? Uh, yeah, like like Grant, Mor- Grant Morrison. Yeah, like The Filth can go along with The Invisibles, too, by Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Yodorowsky comics, um, uh, perhaps oh, also. Oh, gosh. Yeah, at least for some of the visual themes and, and stuff. Although he's, you know, he's more kind of, he he really likes sexual assault. That's always like the thing. Yeah. I've always I struggle show. with it so hard myself yeah. because as a fan who's also like, I'm really enjoying this highly problematic stuff that was made a long time ago. Yeah. 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 He did like note that if you're going to ever dive into it, like a lot of his stuff includes that, but, but I mean, he's, 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 really i that doesn't that doesn't block me out of his material but it is something mm-hmm. you should know going into it yeah well thank you leonardo for joining us um i uh i i you know i i feel more positively towards the series now having spoken with you about it than i did coming into this where i was still a bit bitter over the drag and also how i haven't been able to watch any luke cage at all <laughs> in my scheme to catch up for this like since, and in season two, I've watched season one, obviously, but uh, you know, um, uh-huh. I haven't watched any glow yet. I haven't seen any pose all because I'm like, I got to do this 
second season podcast with Leonardo and I'm going <laughs> to keep my city councilman happy. And, but, um, but, uh, but I feel better about the show not having talked about it. So I, I, I um, I'm looking forward to, to having future conversations. Where, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Leonardo EFF on Twitter. Um, and yeah, like we said at the top, I co-host Black Comics Chat. Scream Squad is coming back, so I'll be on that soon. I'm all over the internet. I just had an article on sci-fi last week um, for mm-hmm. the film Sorry to Bother You, which is magnificent. Um, so yeah, you can find me around. Oh, I want to see that movie so bad. Oh, I'll look forward to reading your review. That 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 looks like probably the best movie of the year, I'm going to guess. My favorite film this year so far. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you, Leo. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me, Ilana. Take so, so to our listeners, um, we'll be back next week on Monday. Um, oh, we might have an episode between now and then talking about the first issue of Captain America. Ta-Nehisi Coates is now writing Captain America. Thank freaking God. Um, we very well might have an episode discussing uh, that new issue between now and Monday. Uh, and if not, I will see you Monday, where we'll be joined by Teeny Howard, who's a comics writer who actually was writing an upcoming story in the Captain America Annual that's not going to be out yet till the fall, but who is going to be on the show on Monday to talk about her new series, Assassinistas, as well as Euthanauts. Euthanauts are just launching very soon. She's doing some really awesome punk rock comics, and uh, she was on earlier the show before to talk about the skeptics. Um, so excited to have her back again. So those are things you have looking to look up to on the show. Again, this is Graphic Policy Radio. You can find me, Ilana Levin, online all the time at Twitter, basically. Uh, Ilana underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. Graphicpolicy.com is our website. Um, You can get full episodes there on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can get the whole Graphic Policy podcast episodes that way, as well as last year's Season 1 podcast about Legion. and uh, I just had a review of Multiple Man, issue number one, over on the Comics Beat. I'd like for folks to check out as well. So uh, till next week, to a rally, talk to somebody you know about how they have to make sure they're voting in the off-year election, and uh, keep it geeky. <laughs> <laughs>